That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful. By what he has revealed. Let me give you an example. The Bible tells us that God is all-powerful. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Whether we're talking about heaven or earth, God is the boss. God has complete control. He is matchless in power and authority. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? When the Apostle Paul met with the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, and he identified all of the gods that they were worshiping, all of the uh, uh, altars and temples that, that grieved his heart when he saw it. And he had a chance to witness to these philosophers. And he said, I passed by and, and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therein ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. And what God am I speaking about? The one true God. He says in verse 24, God that made the world. In all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So God says the Bible is all-powerful. God is all-powerful, but it is a leap in logic to say that because God is all-powerful, that man has no free will at all, that man has no ability to choose. Likewise, the Bible says that God sovereignly determines the outcome of all man's choices. We see that in Proverbs 16, for example. Proverbs 16, 1. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And what is God saying to us there? God's saying, I'm letting you make choices. I've given you the responsibility and with responsibility, of course, is ability. Otherwise, there is no response ability. I'm giving you the ability to make choices, but I am reserving for myself the outcome of those choices. You have the opportunity to make choices, but you don't get to determine how God reacts to your choices or how God responds or what the outcomes will be. And so it is one thing to say, it is a step of faith to say that God created the earth, even though God has clearly revealed it to us. Romans chapter 1 says, so that we're without excuse. God has revealed things to all of us, saved, or, saved and unsaved, about creation. 
It's one thing to say God is all-powerful, God is sovereign, but it is not a leap of faith. It is a leap of logic to say that because God is all-powerful, therefore man has no ability. In fact, yes, God's will is supreme as it relates to all things, including salvation, but it is God's revealed will within His will, beneath the umbrella of His will, to give you the opportunity and the responsibility to choose. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, but as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, John is saying it is God's will. This, is, this wasn't man's idea. This wasn't man's will. This wasn't man's decision or idea. It was God's will within his sovereignty to say that whoever believes in my son Jesus Christ can be born again. Whoever chooses to respond and repent of their sin and recognize their sin before a righteous and holy God, recognize their need for forgiveness, their need for a Savior, and believe in His death and resurrection, it is my will, God says, whoever that may be, whatever you've done, whatever your past, you can be forgiven. That's God's revealed will. And so we don't get to say that because God has authority that man has no ability. God has not exercised His authority to predetermine who to save, rather He has predetermined how to save. Let me say that again. God has used his divine sovereignty not to pick and choose who he is going to save. Rather, he has predetermined by his own authority how he is going to save. That's what Ephesians 1 is telling us. When it says that we have been chosen in him, chosen in Christ, not chosen to be in Christ, not Here's who I'm going to put into Christ. But all who are in Christ, God the Father says, it's my will that if you're in Christ, you are my chosen. You're my children. And I'm going to bless you regardless of what you've done, regardless of whether or not you deserve it. Because guess what? None of us deserve it. Not a single one of us deserves it. And yet all of us have been given this opportunity and this responsibility. I know I told you to... Turn to Romans 8. Let me remind you what Romans chapter 3 says, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law, without the law of Moses, is manifested. It's visible. It's, it's clearly seen. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is what the whole Old Testament has been prophesying now has come true. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that God has already pre-chosen. No. That's not what he says. Unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To, say I de- uh, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? 
it is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. God chooses how to save. And when we respond by faith in Jesus Christ, the only way that God has provided for us to be forgiven, the only way that God has provided for us to be saved, the only way that God has provided for us to escape the righteous judgment of eternal damnation that each of us deserves. I deserve it. I'm a wicked sinner apart from Jesus Christ. Every good thing in me is, is the grace of God. It's what God has done. It's what the Holy Spirit has worked in me. It's not because I fixed myself and got saved. It's because there was a time in my life when I recognized I can fix myself. I'm under condemnation. I'm under damnation. I'm, I'm bound for hell But God has provided a way for me to be forgiven, and it's because he loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, what I've said to you today may seem obvious to you, and it may seem without controversy to you, but but what I'm sharing with you is actually incredibly controversial even within the church. The fact that we give invitations... The fact that we take the time to pray for our lost loved ones. Not every church does that because not every church believes that anyone can be saved. There are many churches today that preach. And listen, this has divided churches. This has divided families. This is actually historically, we're not in a place, thank God, we're not in a place right now historically in our our part of the world where we are in danger of being kicked out of our homes and having our property seized by the church because we teach that anybody can be saved and that Jesus Christ died for the whole world, not just for the chosen ones. But there are times in history where saying that would get me kicked out of my home and excommunicated from the church and in some cases even have to move out of town. This is a very divisive issue, whether you realize it or not. And so you need to understand why we give invitations. You need to understand why we say that you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. You need to understand why almost every week I quote Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because you have been given a responsibility and with it the ability, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The gospel has the power to save the dead. The gospel has the power to give light to the blind. The gospel has the power to open the ears of the deaf, spiritually speaking. And that's why we give invitations. And that's why we pray for our lost loved ones, that God would not, as we'll see this morning, harden their heart as he did in the days of Israel's rebellion and as he did in the days of Pharaoh. So we have been looking at election. It's why we've been, this is such a critical issue. It's why we're spending so much time devoting this, even though we, we just started a study of the book of Ephesians, and we just got to verse 3 and 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. We're taking a break from looking at Ephesians and spending time in Romans chapter 8 and 9, because when you argue with somebody or, or you debate or discuss this issue with somebody, inevitably, If somebody believes that God only picks and chooses some of us, they're going to bring you to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 8. And so what I want to share with you today is that when when I spent a time in my life getting caught up in in something called Calvinism, which some of you are very familiar with and some of you aren't, and I'm not going to unpack all that today, but 
when I got uh, drawn into that when I was in my 30s for a while, Romans chapter 9 was one of the reasons that I got drawn into that in Ephesians chapter 1, but not ironically, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 are also the two passages that brought me back out of Calvinism when I understood what Paul was saying, and I left the baggage behind that we talked about last week, and I said, okay, without my preconceived notions and without my preconceived definitions, Paul, what are you saying by inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And so it's why we're talking about election, and it's why we're talking about these passages of the Scripture. Now, we've already seen that biblical election begins and ends with the elect one, Jesus Christ. That's Isaiah chapter 42, quoted in Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is the elect one. He is the elect one. And the elect people, according to the prophet Isaiah, also repeated in the Gospels, is the nation of Israel. We're going to see that more closely today. Now, doesn't the Bible call us chosen as well? Aren't we also called elect in Christ? Yes, but it's because we are in Christ. It's because he is the elect one. And all who are placed into the elect one are also therefore chosen by God. Again, not chosen to be in him, chosen because we are in him. And so all of the promises of God are yes for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says the Holy Spirit takes us and places us into Christ. And it's like if I were to take a piece of paper and stick it. I've got a little magnet here. This is, our, by the way, our emergency prayer line magnet. that They're out there on the, on the uh, uh, faux fireplace. If you want to grab one of those for your fridge, you can. If I place this magnet in the Bible, you don't see the magnet. You just see the Bible. And when God places us into Jesus Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Jesus Christ. That's why we have the righteousness of Christ. It's not because we're sinless yet. It's because he is sinless. And so we have all of those blessings. Now, last week in Romans chapter 8, we looked at three key things. We, we looked at 20, verses 22 through 39, but really we highlighted verses 28 through 30. And we saw three things that Paul wants us to remember. Let me just very quickly refresh your memory Paul is speaking, verse 33, to those of us who are chosen, those of us who are in Christ. That's verse 1 and 39. This is just promises to those who have received uh, Jesus Christ by faith. That's Romans 3, 4, and 5. But Paul wants us to remember three things. Number one, verse 28, he wants us to remember what we already know. What do you already know? Well, that all things work together for good to them that love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. In other words, Paul's saying, remember that you have already, by faith in Jesus Christ, believed that God works all things together, that he has an eternal plan, that this world is not your home, that this life is not the end-all, be-all, that this life is important, but this life is temporary and fleeting, and that eternal life in Jesus Christ is forever, and the blessings are forever. Remember what you already know, Paul says. You already know that all things work together for good. That's why you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and your salvation. And if you haven't, then you're not saved yet. But you can be. Remember what you already know. Number two in verse 29, remember what God has already done. As I told you last week, Paul very clearly shifts not only the pronouns that he's using from us and we to them and they, but also he's now speaking in the past tense, what God has already done, not the 
present tense. And he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, whom he did foreknow, them he did also predestined, predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. He's saying you need to remember that there is a group of believers that have already been glorified. He's not talking about us. He doesn't say God has glorified us. In fact, he's just spent the previous verses saying, you ain't got your glorification yet. You haven't been resurrected yet. You're not with Jesus yet. You're not perfect yet. You're not sinless yet. Guess what he does in the, in the following verses? He says, you're not free from suffering yet. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to deal with with pain and persecution and even death. But listen, your hope is in what's coming beyond that. Your hope is in who is coming back for all of us, Jesus Christ, and in his great love for us. So we don't have that glorification yet, but there's one group that does, and that's all of the children of God who have already passed from death to life. We think of death as the shadow land, but as C.S. Lewis observed, this life is the shadow land. This life is the shadows. That life is the light. So our lost loved ones, they're, if they're in Christ, they're living in the light. They're, they're glorified. They're without sin now. That's our hope. And Paul says, remember, cling to that hope. But remember, the reason that we call it hope is because you don't have it yet. So remember what God has already done for those that he knew in the past. Remember, we saw last week, Every time, five times in the New Testament, this word foreknow is used. It always simply means what it says, to know before. That's all it means, to know before. We don't get to add words to that. We don't get to add before the foundation of the world whenever we want to add that if the text doesn't say it. All God is saying here is that, listen, those I knew before now that are in Christ, they're already glorified and you need to remember the evidence of my goodness is what I've already done for them remember what you already know remember what God has already done and remember what we all in Christ have already won now we are not experiencing the victory yet we're not experiencing the hope otherwise it wouldn't be called hope but those in Christ we are grounded in the finished work of Christ we are forever guarded by the active Love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 39. We are more than conquerors, Paul says, verse 37. And neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor powers, nor present, nor, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can change any of that. We are in the love of God if we are in the family of God, and that is an awesome thing. Now, In chapter 9, Paul seems to shift gears completely. And he begins to talk about Israel's election. And so this morning, and, and Lord willing, next week, and, and maybe the week after that, we'll see as the Lord leads, we're going to look at Israel's election. What does it mean when we say that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people? Some people don't like that term, but it's the term that the Bible uses. God is put his name on the nation of Israel. So this is an obvious question for Paul to ask, but I put a little question mark beside that in the PowerPoint because 
it's not always obvious to us. In fact, as I've said, there are many people who think when they get to chapter 9, they're like, why are we talking about Israel all of a sudden? What Paul's been talking about the gospel, the power of the gospel. Why are we all of a sudden talking about Israel? Many Christians think God's done with Israel. Many Christians think that, that we are Israel, the church is Israel. Why is Paul talking about Israel? This is an obvious question, though, if you were living in the first century. Because remember, we now have 2,000 years of church history and 2,000 years of focus on the New Testament. And, and that is all right and good. The, the, New, the Old Testament is, is still important for us, too. It's all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. That's Genesis through Malachi as much as it is Matthew through Revelation. Nevertheless, as Christians in the church, we tend to focus on the New Testament. But remember, in the first century, they didn't even have the New Testament yet. They had the Scriptures, which what we call the Old Testament, but they simply called the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. So they didn't even have the New Testament. And they were living in a time decades after the resurrection. And so they had been taught from many of these people from childhood that God had all these promises for Israel, that God was going to send Messiah to be king of Israel and to rule over the world. And Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and then Jesus left. And a lot of people were going like, hold on a second. Um, remember Acts chapter 1, the, the, the apostle said this. Um, are you, are you going to start your kingdom now, Jesus? I mean, uh, look at, we're like uh, you've been resurrected now for a few days. Um, you're about ready to get, get started on building this kingdom because um, we want... We want the evil kingdoms of the world to cease. We want righteousness to reign on earth. We want an end to disease and death. And we want to see your glory with us. And isn't that what you promised us in Isaiah 65 and 66? And isn't that what you promised Zechariah? And isn't that what you promised Abraham and David? And it hadn't happened. And so the question that was on many people's minds, and, and I'm sure that some of the Romans reading this in the first century were like, in chapter 8, they're like, why hasn't he got to, to Israel yet? Why hasn't he talked about why Israel is rejecting their Messiah? And so now Paul deals with an obvious question, obvious to them, not always obvious to us. What about Israel? And this is important to us because how can the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfill God's prophecies and promises to Israel, and promises and, and, and prophecies that Paul has mentioned several times already in this book, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. How can that be so if Israel remains largely in unbelief? And to this day, Israel remains almost entirely in unbelief. Most uh, people of Jewish descent descended from Jacob from Israel do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Not yet. So does that mean that God's promise has failed? Does that mean that God changed his promise? Does that mean that God has replaced, God made a promise to Israel, but then he changed his mind and now we're the ones who get to receive that? Look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness 
and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul says, I look around at all of my brethren who are rejecting their Messiah, and it crushes me on the inside. Do you know that it's not a sin to grieve about the things that grieve the heart of God? It's not a sin to grieve the things that... uh, Sometimes we present this really false, Americanized, saccharine Christianity that, like, it's just, it's gross. Like, we always have to smile, and it's like, you know, it's like the Stepford Wives, right? You always have to smile, and you always have to act like a Christian. Even when you're not feeling, quote-unquote, Christian. Do you know that grief is Christian as well? Sorrow is Christian as well when it's a season of sorrow, when it's a season of grief. And anger is Christian as well if it's something that Jesus gets angry about. So don't let somebody tell you that just because your emotion is quote-unquote negative that it's not righteous or that you're somehow sinning. Paul says, I've got grief. I've got continual sorrow in my heart because I see my brothers in Christ or brothers in the flesh, excuse me. I see my brothers in the flesh, and they're rejecting Christ. I want them to be my brothers in Christ. I want them to get saved. And Paul doesn't say, but God didn't choose them. Paul says, if I could, I would trade places with them. God will keep his promise to Israel. So here's Paul's emphatic affirmation. Here's Paul's emphatic affirmation. Israel does retain even an unbelief. She is still the chosen people of God. She is. Listen to what he says. And notice that he says all of this in the present tense. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth. Present tense. The adoption. That means sonship. God calls them his children even though they're Most of them are not saved, but he treats them as children. Some of you have children who have strayed, who are um, living in rebellion like Israel. God knows your heart. God knows your grief. God knows the, the pain that you suffer for that. He says theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the glory. That's God's presence, his manifest presence with his people that we see continually in the Old Testament, uh, in the tabernacle, in the temple. The covenants made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the law. Yes, the law has been fulfilled by Messiah, that Colossians 2.14 the, the law has been nailed to the cross. The, the commandments of condemnation have been nailed to the cross. But nevertheless, the law shows us the character and heart of God. Paul says the service of God, this is acts of worship. The promises given to and through the fathers, especially the promise of Messiah, these blessings are all in the present tense. Of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Now, what Paul is going to do here, he's going to say, listen, I know what many of you are thinking, and and unfortunately, sometimes we're not thinking it because we're always going to the Bible going, where am I? 
where am I, not what is God sharing. And so a lot of times we, as the church, we don't think about Israel or we think God's done with Israel, which Paul is here saying, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about God is not done with Israel. God has a plan. He made promises. He will keep those promises. And the evidence of that is some people think that because Israel rejected Messiah that God rejected them. But remember, Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenants. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. The covenant is not broken because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so even though he is not yet ruling and reigning from Jerusalem on the throne of his father David, he will. He will return, and he will set up a literal kingdom from a literal Jerusalem. He's going to sit on a literal throne, and he's going to rule over a new Jerusalem, over all the nations of the earth, and that day will come. It's still hope. We're not, we're not there yet. It's still hope, but it is certain. And so Israel does retain her chosen role. Now, what Paul is going to do next is he is going to explain how it is that an unbelieving people can reject their Messiah and still be God's chosen people, and God can still have a plan. Chapter 9 of Romans is not about God picking and choosing who he will save. It's not. Paul's already told us what he's talking about here. Paul's not talking about that here. Paul is talking about the nation of Israel and the promises that God has made to them. Will God keep his promises to national Israel even though they have rejected their king and rejected their Messiah? That Paul tells us that's what he's talking about. So we always, if we're going to look at this chapter and have it say anything to us, it has to be in context. We can't, let, we can't hear Paul say, I'm talking about Israel, and then say, oh, well, what he's really talking about is God picking and choosing individuals for salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about God's promises to Israel. Again, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, or verse 4, the promises, verse 5, whose are the fathers, the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and of whom are concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither have done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said of her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, not all of Israel is Israel. What in the world is Paul talking about? This is confusing at first glance and the reason it's confusing is because many times we don't again we don't bring that old testament context to this text we grew up being taught 
primarily the New Testament. Oh, yeah, we know if you grew up in church, you know a lot of the Old Testament stories. But generally speaking, because we're Gentile Christians, we have focused largely on the teachings of the New Testament. But again, as I said, the New Testament wasn't written yet. They didn't have that. They had the Old Covenant. And that's what they knew, and that was their framework. That was their mindset. And so Paul is referencing stories that were very familiar to them that are sometimes not as familiar to us. And what we need to do, and we need to do this all the time, guys, we need to take the time when Paul or Jesus or John or Peter, when they reference the Old Testament, we need to actually take the time and go back and look at what they're referencing so that we know what they're talking about and not just assume what we're, what, what we're reading and, and not just assume and make jumps in logic to say, well, I think this text is about God choosing individuals for salvation. Therefore, I'm going to interpret everything that Paul says in that light. But we don't take the time to actually look at the context. Paul's already told us this is about the promises God has made to national Israel. And go back to the passages that he quote and look at what Paul actually says. So. It has never been. Here's what Paul means. When Paul says not all of Israel is Israel, he said something very similar to this back in chapter 2. In fact, just keep your finger in Romans chapter 9 and jump back with me to Romans chapter 2. won't read the entire chapter. But Paul is talking about circumcision as a sign of being a Jewish person, a covenant Jewish person under the law. And the Jews were very proud of their circumcision. But Paul says, let's just jump to verse 28. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Generally speaking today, when we circumcise a male, it's done at birth. It's done right after they're born. They have no say in the matter. And from personal experience with our son, they're not happy about it when it happens, right? They're not very happy at what has just taken place. Paul says, you know what, that makes you a Jew on the outside, but God's not concerned about the outside. God's not looking at who's checking off boxes and jumping through hoops and something that was done to you that you'd had no, no responsibility in. God's looking at the heart. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 9, not all of Israel is Israel, what he's saying is, listen, the question is not who is your father, who's your daddy. The question is, who have you placed your trust in? It's about your faith, not your family. And it's always been about that. See, God made promises to all the nation of Israel, but it's not enough to receive a promise if you don't believe a promise. It's not enough to receive a promise if you don't believe it. That's what Paul's saying here. Just because God made a promise to them doesn't mean that they appropriated it themselves, that they responded. And listen, all of those Jews had an opportunity at some point who rejected Messiah, had an opportunity to receive him, but they didn't. And so just because they are 
physically in the family, Paul says, doesn't mean they're spiritually in the family. You have to make a choice. You have to believe the promise. Salvation is based on faith, not family. Listen, there are God's promises to all of national Israel, according to the flesh, as Paul says. And one day, God is going to be able to pour it out to the entire nation because the entire nation will be believing. But when you get to the end of the story, you find out the, the way that they're all believing is that God lets everybody who's not believing be killed and slaughtered in the, in the, day of the time of Jacob's trouble. At, by the end of the, of, of the seven years of Jacob's trouble there, all the ones who don't believe in Jesus are, are going to be cut down. And when it's one united, we all believe as a nation in Jesus Christ. The promise is they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him, but he will save them. And he will come back and save Israel. So God's, God has made promises to these people. Listen, everyone here has heard the gospel this morning. That doesn't mean you're all saved. I can't look inside your heart. I can't look inside your mind. I don't know what decision you've made for Jesus Christ. I, some of you aren't even here physically. You're watching online or you're listening to the podcast. And I can't look inside your heart. The offer has been presented to you. The responsibility to respond is yours. And that's what Paul is saying here. The promises were made to Israel, but that doesn't mean they all get the promise. They have to receive it in their heart, not just in their ears. A true spiritual Jew is a believing Jew. And then Paul goes on to say, listen, God is going to keep those promises not because of how good Israel is or how bad they are, but in spite of how bad they are because of his glory, not theirs. And you know, that's the same reason that we can trust in Jesus Christ, not because of how good we are, not because we deserve it. Not because I earn, I'm earning it now as a Christian. I've, I trusted in Christ, but now, hey, I'm a pastor, so I'm really earning it. No, no, it's not my goodness. It's his glory. And he's placed his name on me. And so as Psalm 23 says, now he's going to walk with me as, as my shepherd for his name's sake. Not just for mine. He placed his name on me. I'm his child, and even if I'm a brat, and sometimes I am, and even if I'm spoiled rotten, and sometimes I am, listen, his name, not mine. He's going to do it for his name's sake, for his glory, and the same is true for God's promises to Israel. Now, let's just look at these two examples here that God gives to prove his point. He talks about two births that were very important to the nation of Israel. The first is a miraculous birth, and the second is a contentious birth. Look again at verse 6 through 9. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because are they the seed of Abraham are they children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted. For the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Now remember, Sarah was good and old and well past the age 
of being able to physically, naturally bear a child. And God said, I'm going to do a miracle that everybody can agree is a miracle. This old 90-year-old woman, she's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a child. And everybody's going to say, that was a God thing. He's going to do a miracle. And he says, listen, it's not the child that you tried to have out of wedlock so that you could, Abraham, fulfill the promise yourself in your own strength by your own works when I promised you a son. And Sarah, you couldn't get Sarah pregnant, and so you did, you committed a sin. You, you did a shortcut to try to, get your, to try to get my promise fulfilled by your strength. God said, no, no, no. It's going to be my power. It's going to be my strength. It's going to be a miracle that I've done. And so Paul reminds us that God chose to keep his promises through Isaac, not Ishmael, through miracle, not works. This miraculous conception demonstrates that God's promises are accomplished by God's power, not ours. It's not, Israel doesn't lose the promises God has made to them because they physically failed. It's never been about physical strength and physical goodness. It's always been about what God has done and the miraculous power of God that works salvation and works the fulfillment of all his promises. And as Paul wrote in Galatians 4.24, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. God has made promises to us that he will keep despite ourselves because it's about his glory and it's about his power. And so Paul says, listen, remember Israel's election is a miraculous work in God's miraculous opening up the womb of Sarah to be able to have this child Isaac. God chose to keep his promise through Isaac, not Ishmael. Notice also verses 10 through 13 as we close. God chose to keep his promise decisively through Jacob, not Esau. Through Jacob, not Esau. Not only this, verse 10, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, according to God's choice, of Israel to receive his promises. God's choice of Israel to receive his promises. That's what election is, that's what election is talking about here. Isn't that what Paul has been talking about for the first 10 verses? God's promises to Israel, God's promises to fulfill Israel. He's not talking about salvation here, individual salvation. He's talking about God's covenant with choosing Israel as his chosen elect people. But of him that calleth, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God's prenatal selection of Jacob, who would have his name changed to Israel, proves that God's promises to Abraham and Isaac were not earned by Israel. They weren't earned by Jacob. Nor were they lost by Esau because of his works, because none of them had done anything. Paul's whole point here is Israel did not become God's chosen people because of what Jacob did. And Israel did not become God's chosen people because of what Esau did or didn't do. God made a choice who he would bless 
to carry on the covenant of promise. Who would be in the legacy from Abraham to Messiah Jesus Christ? God said, I'm going to choose Jacob, not Esau. And he, he made that choice before either of them had done anything. It wasn't based on works. It wasn't based on what they did. This election is God's national plan for Israel. He's not talking here about making Jacob be saved and making Esau go to hell. He's not talking about that. That's not, that's not in his context here. He's talking about his national plan and promises as the covenant people of God. From Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael. From Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. That's what Paul's line of thinking here is. And he uses a Jewish idiom, I love you and I hate you. This was a a Jewish idiom of the day to express not his hatred for Esau as a person. Oh, I'm going to damn you to hell. That's nowhere in this text. But his love for Jacob in giving him the blessing, giving him the covenant over Esau. God's choice, not ours. Now, as we close here today, I just want to highlight a few things from the Old Covenant that was their context that sometimes we don't realize. We read a summary, and if we don't take the time to go back and look at the actual passage that Paul is quoting from, we can misunderstand and we can twist. So listen to what Genesis says and listen to what Malachi says as we close. Genesis 25, Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children, she had twins. She didn't know it, of course. They didn't have, you know, uh, ultrasounds and stuff back then. She didn't know what was going on. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And here's, listen to what God said to her. This is Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. He's not talking about Jacob and Esau as individuals. He's talking about the covenant promise that will come on the descendants of Jacob not on the descendants of Esau. And by the way, that's the context of Malachi chapter, uh, uh, chapter uh, 1 as well, when he says the burden of the, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, speaking to Israel, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. By the way, he's speaking here to a nation in rebellion, a nation that is not saved. He's not talking to a group of Christians here. He's talking to a group of people who are not saved, and he says, I love you. And if you're not saved here today, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because you've chosen not to love him. Malachi chapter 4, and I hated Esau, laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down 
They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. This is not about God choosing Jacob for salvation and Esau for hell. This is about God choosing what Genesis says. It's what Malachi says. It's what Paul says in Romans 9. God has chosen Israel. God has chosen the descendants of Jacob, not because they earned it, not because Jacob earned it, but because that's how he chose. Now, next week, we'll talk about God's right to choose. God gets to make choices, too. But again, we're not going to make that leap in logic and say, because God chooses, we don't. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God has given us choice. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see that even though God brings condemnation on a nation, that does not mean that individuals in that nation cannot respond and individually be saved. God has a purpose for Israel. God will fulfill that purpose. You know what that tells me? God's going to keep his promises to me too. You can be part of that, but you need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the awesome, awesome testimony of your faithfulness to an unbelieving and rebellious people. God, a people who even in their unbelief, God, you stretch out your hands to them. You love them. You call them. And God, you're doing the same today here. You're stretching out your hands and you're offering forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord, not based on what we do, but what Christ has done, his death for our sin, his resurrection for our life. God, I pray if there's anyone here today or listening today who is trusting in their works, who is trusting in their goodness, God, I pray this would be the day that your spirit would bring such conviction in their heart that they would recognize that they can be forgiven of the worst because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, gave the best and only sacrifice that could ever be given to pay for all of our sins, his blood, and you raised him from the dead. Father, we thank you for saving us in such an unbelievably sacrificial way, God, through your own son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on June 6th, 2021, during our Sunday morning worship service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 1030 a.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., and Wednesday at 645 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it.